In this episode of 2036, the podcast, the best of what AI has to offer is when we build tools in a fair manner that helps expand human possibilities. And the worst of what AI has to offer is when these tools and the way they're built detract from human possibilities through surveillance or through manipulation on social media with advertising. Part of the responsibility is on us is to push for the better, not the worse. When people understand AI and machine learning and its connection to data and some of the potentials and some of the pitfalls, that gives them a, an ability to ask questions, to make demands for appropriate treatment, to expect better. Quite frankly, and I think all that starts with understanding. Hello and welcome to 2036, the podcast. My name is Munir Magjani, and I will be your host for this conversation. Today, with us, we have Matthew Sag, a professor of law and artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data science within the Emory University School of Law. Sag is a national author on the fair use doctrine in copyright law and its implication for researchers in text data mining. Machine learning and AI. He studied economic history, political science, and law at the Australian National University. Graduating with honors, Sag has practiced law in Australia, the United Kingdom, and in Silicon Valley, California. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Benir. It's a pleasure to be here. So, our audience may be coming to this conversation with different knowledge bases about AI and and all of that. That goes into it as well. Can you briefly explain what text mining is and how that might be used throughout Emory as well? Sure. So, text mining is basically the process of bringing structure to unstructured data. So, if you think about a novel like Moby Dick, one very simple way of text mining that novel is to count up the words that are most common. If you do that, you'll find out that Moby Dick is a novel about whales. An old man and the sea. Text mining is useful because it's really the technology that feeds all sorts of machine learning processes. If you're working with a computer that seems to understand your queries and tell you things that are responsive to them, well, it's doing that because underneath that is text mining. Text mining is the process of taking large volumes of unstructured data. And making them computable, and really the purpose of doing that is not so much to learn more about Moby Dick as a novel; it's really to understand colossally large groups of novels. It's a way of studying forests rather than trees. Trees we can go and read for ourselves to understand how the tree relates to the forest, or how different forests of information compare to each other. We need tools to process information at a scale that defies human reading, and that's really where text mining comes in. So, in a few different episodes, we've talked about how, for the 20th century, knowledge was the gold rush, right? And now it's about asking questions because knowledge is so easily available on platforms like Google. So, is it text mining that's really made that kind of you know an obsolete of where knowledge is so easily available to most people now? Yeah, that's one way of thinking about it. You can think about text mining as sort of the ultimate information retrieval tool 
And the problem now is, I mean, like 200 years ago, books were really rare. Mm. People would put their libraries out in the living room because if you owned like a significant collection of books, that was quite an impressive and important thing. Now, in the Western world, we all have access to just this fire hose of right. information. And so what's more important than just having books or having data is the ability to process, analyze, search within, understand. How do you encourage people to do that? This is a conversation that I've had with, with several folks on this very podcast of moving from the 20th to 21st century is this processing, this asking better questions in a world today that's continuously polarized and you're getting information, some that you can trust, some that you can't, but you don't know what it is either. How does someone like you kind of sift through all that information? Oh, that's a tough question. I think for me personally, you show people what can be done. You give them exciting examples and you encourage them to think, how could I apply these techniques to my own work? Uh, so I'll give you an example. So a co-author and I, we use a lot of text mining to analyze Supreme Court oral arguments. Mm. We have the transcript. We turn them into a database. We ask interesting meta questions and then think about how to operationalize them. And, you know, honestly, the programming is not that sophisticated. It's just the thinking in terms of something people have never thought of as data and realizing, no, no, we could turn that into data and we could ask really interesting questions. So one of the questions we're asking at the moment is, has the complexity of language at the Supreme Court changed? Mm. I have a working theory that the language the justices use in oral argument is becoming simpler as the justices are more consciously performing for an external audience. Now, without text mining, that's just my opinion. But, you know, I think we have the tools to test this, and I might be wrong because we haven't finished the data yet. But, you know, that's an example of how you can apply this kind of approach to information in lots of different areas. And ultimately, you know, you can't make people think. Right. But you can, you can provoke and inspire and dare them to imagine different ways of understanding. That's pretty incredible to, to be able to, you know, kind of draw some conclusions like this that would not be able to be, you know, perceived otherwise. Could you, in theory, also then use this to maybe say, here's the 20 key words that have continuously helped win over the Supreme Court, or here's the key words that a commercial needs to really help, you know, create action in terms of having folks push the button and purchase something. Yeah, so you can do that kind of thing, and people definitely do. That sort of leads us to one of the interesting questions in machine learning is how good are those results? So you can you can use machine learning, which is really in some ways just a much more sophisticated version of the analysis we've talked about. You can use that to determine patterns from the training data and you then have a theory that that will apply to new situations. But the, you know, the key validity question for machine learning and AI is, does that really track? Like, you know, is the future really the same as the past? And so I'll give you an example there. So Amazon 
trained uh, its a recruitment AI to read resumes of people who wanted to be computer programmers. And the AI very quickly learned that a successful computer programmer is male. And so based on that information, it would screen out CVs that had clear identifiers of being female. And people looked at that and they were kind of horrified, as they should be. It was just the training data contained an accurate reflection of the world as it was, but certainly not as it should be and as it could be. And so, you know, this is, this is one of the big social and legal issues in AI is, you know, how can we get people to use machine learning and AI in a way that doesn't just hardwire the biases of the past? Because that's something that we don't right, want to do. Right, right. I mean, you quite literally walked me right to my next question, which was you keep talking about training data, which obviously has the potential and the scope of bias. So how do we prevent that? I don't have a great answer to that question. It's partly because it's a question that needs to be answered quite specifically in each context. So with the Amazon CV data, for example, you could easily fix that by just making the training data balanced in terms of gender. That would probably do the trick. Other things are more difficult. Other things we face the problem of, we don't really know what the ground truth should be in the first place. And so any attempt we make to de-bias the data is really just imposing a new value judgment on it. Now, on the other hand, we also know human decision makers have a lot of flaws and you know, it's possible that even with a second best solution, maybe we can do better than really flawed human decision makers. So I think you know, this issue of fairness and bias and de-biasing, you know, this is the major conversation in the AI community today is how do you make things fair, but also well, what is your concept of fairness? Right, right. How do you make things accountable while still taking advantage of just the enormous complexity of computer systems that can train in an unsupervised fashion, while at the same time, not just carrying forward all of the bad historical baggage of the flaws in our society, or also just, you know, random quirks and errors in the data. That's something that multiple people are working on. And there are legal aspects to it. There are technical aspects to it. There are some interesting just philosophical questions and also mathematical questions. Yeah. That's, and, and that is really interesting because it, it's going back to this core of nature versus nurture, right? Where naturally women and men may be equal, nurturing is making these changes. And so it almost seems like the AI, if we did agree on what a future world should look like, could help us play a role into just imagining that as well. I think that's right. I think one of the fascinating things about humans, of course, is that we never agree. Right. Of course. Of course. So speaking of being more human, 
the first time that I heard the term AI.humanity was through the Emory 2036 campaign. What does that mean to you? What is AI.humanity? To me, AI.humanity is about bringing together people from across the university to look at a social, legal, and technical transformation that we're currently going through and to ask, what is our role in this? What is our role as researchers? What is our role preparing the leaders of tomorrow? How can we, you know, how can we help society manage this really important transformation? You know, because I think, you know, I'm very optimistic, but there are clearly ways of doing things better and doing things worse. And it's the exciting thing about AI.humanity is that the university sees this as a, a global problem, sees this as a, a multifaceted issue. This is not just something for the technical people. It's something that has to involve the philosophers. It has to involve the lawyers. It has to involve the business people. You know, it has to involve the medical school. Someone needs to be thinking about not just what cool new toys can we create, but how will this affect people? What about the people whose training data was used? And I think, you know, these are big questions. And you know, AI.humanity is a big project. So for someone listening to this, you talked about how AI seeps into almost every aspect of our world. What can an individual do to make sure that this is used for good? And is there anything specific that we at Emory can do to ensure that as well? I think that looking at Emory, the most important thing to do is to realize that knowledge is power. And so when we make the world more knowledgeable, then we diffuse that power. And I think that is really important. You when people understand AI and machine learning and its connection to data and some of the potentials and some of the pitfalls, that gives them a, an ability to you know, ask questions, to make demands for appropriate treatment, to expect, you know, to expect better, quite frankly. And I think all that starts with understanding. You talked about how, as a young boy, reading sci-fi was something that got you into this. Uh, you're famously known for you know, having read a lot of science fiction books as well. Is there a specific book or an author that really inspired all of it? Um, I'm almost embarrassed to say, because it's so cliche, but it's Isaac Asimov. And so reading Isaac Asimov and the laws of robotics and just thinking about possibilities that were really far remote and you know I should tell you like when I was when I was a child I'm dyslexic I actually had a lot of trouble reading and because of that I was an incredibly bad speller and I remember my grade seven teacher said to me he said how do you expect to get on in the world if you're such a bad speller and I just read an Isaac Asimov book where a character was dictating to their computer and it was handwriting and this seemed magical. And I just announced quite confident. I said, oh no, by the time I go into the workforce, computers will spell for you. And that turns out to be largely true. Yeah. As someone who has a hard time spelling for some reason, I do appreciate that as well. 
So for those of you listening, I hope that you will take away from this to study the forest and not get lost in the trees and to spread love, but to also spread knowledge, to disseminate the power that currently exists. Thank you so much again for joining us and thank you for all the work that you're doing here at Emory and around the world to make AI a little bit more human. Thanks, Vinia. Absolutely. On the next episode of 2036, the podcast. We know there's a huge disparity between underrepresented populations, minority populations, and the health disparity, of course, is one that has its roots in systemic racism. A lot of the diagnostic tools that are developed, unfortunately, have been developed in a way that have not included representations of different populations. So I talked about these molecular tests for identifying which breast cancer patients will benefit from chemotherapy or not. Well, a paper came out last year showing that these tests actually don't work in black women. And so what we've been doing is thinking about how can we be intentional and deliberate with AI so that we can start to identify specific patterns in populations wherein we can start to create more tailored, precise AI-based models for those particular populations. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about 2036, Emory's campaign to transform the future, visit 2036.emory.edu.